about having my next guest here today with us. He's a clinical social worker, a journalist, a public speaker, policy advocate for for who who works with addicts, and a man who is literally well. How about this? He's the co-founder of Rebound Brooklyn, an innovative treatment program in New York City, alongside with addiction psychiatrist Dr. Scott Benenfield, felt who is probably one of the only addiction psychiatrist in the country, one of very few. He also founded something that's called High Sobriety, the first of its kind rehab center that integrates cannabis into addiction recovery. You heard me right. It integrates cannabis into addiction recovery. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Joe Schrank to Let's Be Blunt on Montel. Yay! Hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining me. Son. Thanks, man. I I appreciate it. I appreciate the name of your your podcast here because I know no other way but uh, to be one. It's so. really funny though when you say I'm glad you just said it because you know no other way. But isn't it hysterical how we're watching the landscape of all these, you know, so-called uh, uh, presidential candidates who are all making these veiled statements? Well, I'll support some form of marijuana legislation. I'll support some form of marijuana reform yet won't be blunt enough to tell us what that means. Well, right. I mean, well, sure. I mean, that's a crazy thing is nobody wants to, nobody, one of the things about what I've learned is that all drug policy is successful to the degree that we can be honest about it. And nobody wants to be honest about cannabis in many different regards. You know, they're sort of slow moving in this, uh, it's like melting a glacier with a, with a, a hairdryer. And, you know, it's just crazy. It's just crazy how they how they will not commit to nobody will say it is a safer substance than alcohol. Our policy is exactly backwards. No one will even admit the history of cannabis, the fact that it's been around for well over 5000 years, written about, discussed, used as a medical, you know, in the in the, the medical pharmacopoeia, pharmacopoeia worldwide, from everywhere from China to the Middle East. It, it, it's been around, yet we act as if this is something that was just discovered 25 years ago in the 50s when they decided to, to use it as a, a tool to arrest and incarcerate people. But you know, we can get to that in another, let's be blunt. You know, you're really setting a standard, I think, here in the nation. And it's very funny. I, I should back up and tell you that almost two years ago, I did a a show with Dr. Oz, and and I've been involved in the medical marijuana movement for now almost 20 years. Excuse me, long before it was Vogue, long before people would step out and say that they even supported marijuana, but I've been involved in trying to ensure that patients like myself could have conversations with their doctors, private conversations, and have access to efficacious medication. That's what I've been pushing I've testified for state legislatures all over the country from 2000 until recently. And it's so funny that now in maybe the last three or four years, there's been a lot more people who have jumped on the bandwagon, some of which have come there because they look at it as a green rush opportunity. Others have finally stopped listening to the lies they were told and started to seek out some truths on their own. But about two years ago, I did a show with Dr. Ross talking about cannabis as an exit drug for opioid addiction. And it was one of his higher rated shows, but it kind of came and went and people went, eh, well, whatever. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, it's an interesting thing. And I kind of have a little resentment because I gave that, that phrase to one of his young producers and then they never called me, which is fine. It's, you know, the message is important, but I think that, that the notion that cannabis is a gateway into severe addiction is, 
is uh, it's flawed, it's debunked, it doesn't make any sense. It's not based in scientific fact. It's not based in, in common sense. One of the things that I have learned about opiate use and opiate dependence is that it is very much a process to eliminate that, right? So one of the biggest hurdles for people to come into treatment is that they're very afraid of the detox. They have all had some attempt to detox themselves and to try and just sort of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of recovery. And so they know that the pain in which they're, uh, they're in for, the nausea, so on and so forth. And so one of the first things that I thought is, I don't understand why we're not giving these people um, cannabis for symptomatic care. Like, why, why do we feel as though punishment or having, you know, enhancing sickness is somehow going to be beneficial to their recovery? It's not. And so cannabis is a very, it's a solid way for people to take a really good step into recovery. Um, you know, first, first with the, with the symptomatic care of detoxing, right? So a lot of the symptoms are going to mirror flu-like symptoms. It's going to help them sleep. It's going to help them eat. It's going to help them manage the, the, the bone pain, all of the things that people um, talk about when they're being uh, taken off of opiates. So that's one of, one of the really great things. A lot of, um, you know, from there, whatever led them down that road in the first place, whether they're trying to manage stress, anxiety, insomnia, chronic pain, cannabis can be a really great replacement for all of those things. You know, for the people who are severely um, dependent on opiates and are risking their very lives, to me, if we get them on to off of that kind of protocol off of that self-harming behavior and onto medicinal cannabis, that's a massive, that's a triumph. You know, it's just, it's just a victory. And right. And we shouldn't say that it isn't. We shouldn't say you're not really sober. You know, one of the big pushbacks I get is, well, if they're using, if they're smoking pot, they're going to, that'll lead them back to heroin. And my response is always, look, maybe it's abstinence that leads them back to heroin, right? Because 98% of them go back to heroin. You know, we need to be very cautious, you know, people, um, the rehab industrial complex is not effective. Uh, it, it cannot be viewed as anything other than a failure from a systemic point of view. Every time I say that, I get emails. I went to Betty Ford and I never drank again, right? So it doesn't mean that there aren't people who, who are, uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't folks who, who do find success in that particular structure. But for the most part, your odds of sustaining a severe or even, you know, whatever range of a chemical dependency by going to 12-step indoctrination rehab um, are very minimal. You know, the chances of success are, are minimal. You know, I live in I live in the state of Florida now, and you know, Florida is probably mm -hmm. you know the what is it, the mecca of rehab centers. And if the rehab centers yeah, without question, if the rehab centers right. work the way they claim they would, they do, then yeah. you wouldn't have the fact that Florida is also one of the most dependent states in the union when it comes to opioid right. addiction. But let's let's slow well, down. Well, yeah, sure. And one of my responses is always, okay. Well, if it's so if it's so effective, why the body count? And and don't right. misunderstand. I'm all for people finding a spiritual solution. I'm all for twelve step recovery. I'm not I'm not trying to say that that's not a good path. It's actually you know my path. I'm a big AA guy. Um, yeah, let's, but let's, I don't let's think talk, that everybody's. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, let's sorry. talk a little bit about your path because you you for yeah. a period of time in your own life in your own experience. Struggled with depression and alcoholism, and yes. how did you actually, or how did your getting help help to shape the ideas that you have now? Well, I think that as a really young guy, you know, coming from a 
military family of traumatized veterans and cops and so on and so forth, you know, you, you have a familiarity with people trying to treat depression with alcohol. You know, it's just part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very insidious. And, you know, and, and so it's a very easy thing to slide down. You know, mostly humans do what they see. We, we do about 10% of what we're told and we do about 90% of what we're shown. And so I think, um, you know, that was an easy trap for me to fall into. Um, pouring alcohol on depression is actually the worst possible plan uh, because it just perpetuates, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, when I, when I went back to school, I went back into social work practice and started getting experience. It was sort of a natural progression for me to gravitate towards that population, um, you know, specifically young guys. I feel like social work, I feel like there are a few systems where men are actually the subjugated class and social work and therapy is certainly one of them. Um, largely written by women, for women. And I sound like I'm speaking badly of women. I'm not. I'm, I mean, I understand. I'm not, I'm not trying to be one of those. Things. But, but the truth of the matter is, is trying to engage a young guy into a therapeutic process is very different. You know, they're not... You, I don't know if you have sons or nephews or... I have a son. Uh, yes, I have a son. Three okay, daughters. you have a son. All right, so, all right. So you have a son and you said, hey, how's it going? And he said, huh, but fine. Right? I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it, that's how they are. I mean, it's just it's just that particular breed of cat in that stage of life. And so, you know, I think that we could all do a better job with the young men in our lives, whether it's nephews or neighbors or whoever they are. Um, but so that kind of became my one of my big focus is, well, how do you engage that particular population in therapy? Um, because they're not really couch sitters. They don't really like the idea of therapy. It makes them feel weak. They feel, you know, I mean, if they're athletes, forget it. They're not going to do any of that. So, so that's, right. that's pretty much how I think I went down that road. Okay. And then, I mean, well, now are you, are, would you still say that you use the 12 step program for yourself? Yeah. You're Correct. And did that work for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it did. I, I, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think that the more academic I am about it, the more I understand that what really works for people uh, with any range of mental health issues, whether it's depression or substance misuse or whatever it is, they have to be connected, right? So you have to be connected to uh, a system, to people that you trust. You know, the ancient Greeks said of all mental health, be not idle, be not alone. So do something and do it with somebody. I think what I learned over time is that it doesn't necessarily have to be a 12-step program. There's nothing inherently magical about it. There's people who find, you know, help in being involved in a community or a church organization or, you know, what's important is that they end the isolation and that they have some measure of accountability. I feel like I got extraordinarily lucky with the peers that I found in AA and that was just sort of the butterfly effect of that's where I was. Right. AA is not um, it's not all like super fun uh, Upper East Side Manhattan. Right. Which is where I was at that particular time. (laughs) I mean, like what if I had ended up in an AA meeting and um, I don't know. I mean, I went to grad school at the University of Illinois. The AA meetings in Champaign-Urbana were dramatically different than the AA meetings on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And so I think that. you know, in retrospect, I can look back and I'm all for people attending AA meetings, but if they have any sort of uh, resistance, I'm not into coercing them into it. 
you know, it's more of a conversation of, all right, look, you don't want to do AA. That's not what, what are you going to do? Because if you're going to sit in your apartment alone, you're going to fall back down the hole. So you have to have a plan and a strategy to end isolation to, to address your overall wellness. Um, um, you know, how are you going to manage your mental health? That could include AA, but it also may not include AA. Gotcha. Um, and I think that's one of the ways that I get myself into trouble because in the rehab world, that's blasphemy, right? Right. I mean, we're supposed to bring people in and make them understand the error of their ways and that they must go to AA or they will die. Um, and I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like that messaging at all. Um, I think that everybody walks their path. You know, people find help in different ways. Uh, people find the portal into something different in many, many, many different ways. Um, you know, we shouldn't uh, base how somebody is going to try to change or make improvements. That shouldn't have any element of shame um, or, well, you're not doing it right. Kind of yeah, thing. I've got, um, I've kind of found, you know, I have a, I have a family member who is an AA and I don't, I do not yeah. offer up any advice at all. I keep my mouth shut, yeah. but there uh-huh. are times that I feel, <laughs> but there are times that I feel yeah. like I wish yeah. I didn't keep my mouth shut because I feel as if, yeah. why are they guilting you into feeling this way? Like you can't survive unless you speak to this person today. Right. I find that as addicting as the right. addiction you had. So, well, but. yes. I mean, maybe the addiction becomes control. You know, Pope Pius X talked about um, that evangelicalism is a sin. Other faiths have their own relationship with God. We're not there to correct people. And I feel like it's the same with recovery. You find your relationship with recovery. You outline your goals. You do what you is, is going to be right for you, not pleasing the system. Or you know, I mean, Americans love the idea of addressing a substance misuse issue means cessation of all drug use. Maybe, right. you know, right. that could be, that, that, that's a way that some people have gotten better, but that's not necessarily informed by science or research. Dr. Carl Hart will tell you that that's insanity. You know, the notion that we're going to have some drug-free culture is crazy. Right, and the fact that, and, and, but whoever, I mean, let, let's back up for a second and try to figure out why is the idea of a euphoria or the idea of, separating yourself from momentarily, I'm not talking about continuously, but momentarily separating mm-hmm. yourself from the reality of, you know, the dismal surroundings. Why is that such a bad thing? And if it is, then that means that we should be going after every substance on the planet that has some sort of euphoric outcome from alcohol to you name it. But we don't. Mm-hmm. We, we pick and choose what we say. You, it's OK for you to get drunk every night. You know, and and we have bars and places where people can go and make sure that they can, you know, get as drunk as they want. Right. But we don't have places that people well, can not, go to other I mean, look, and I mean, I guess, you know, you and I are preaching the choir here. I think right. that one of my big missions with drug policy in general, you know, working at a systemic level is to say, OK, first of all, people who, who use cannabis recreationally, um, how is it different than people who have a glass of wine? Nobody can explain to me that it's, you know, there are many, many millions of people, especially here or in San Francisco, they're going to come home from work, they're going to have a glass of wine, they're going to watch the news, and nothing is going to happen. There is no impairment, there is no diagnosis, it's not pathology, it's a glass of wine for relaxation or whatever it is. It's not different with cannabis. It's actually safer with cannabis. Less Um, violent with cannabis. 
less violent with cannabis, right? I find that alcohol is a very dangerous substance. I find it to be incredibly toxic. I think that people, if you look at the damage just sort of collectively in any one society, you know, uh, well, how about the alcohol? Like, it was one of the things that would drive me crazy about Jeff Sessions. Well, bad, well good, good, good people don't smoke weed, right? In his state, you can legally have a still. You can distill grain alcohol in your garage. How about go like, to oh, any place in Washington, D.C.? How about go to any hotel in Washington, D.C. and stop by the hotel bar at 4.30? It's almost like these people right. cannot wait to get out of their automobile to run up and belly up to the bar. Yet that same group of people would say that somebody who went up to their room in quiet, took a couple of hits off of a joint, they are some right. sort of, of, you know, deranged, I don't know what, I just don't get it. Right, right. <clears throat> that, 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 they're, that they're criminals. Right, um, but they're criminals. Look, I think that, look, all cultures, I think that, that and you, you referenced it briefly, but I think that the intention, and I guess the Nixon administration did a good job of vilifying the substance because of the culture which used the substance. Right. All cultures have the let's sit down. You, you talk to a 75-year-old man in Greece, and he says, oh, let's sit down, and they're going to pour you a glass of ouzo, right? No question. And I walked in, right, I walked into my, my father-in-law, and I didn't drink, and I walked into his house, and he would say, have a drink. And I'd say, I'd say Norman, I don't drink. And he'd say, oh, right, I forgot, have a beer. You know? Right, <laughs> like, right. So all cultures have this sort of ritualization of let's sit down, let's relax, can have a drink. So the, the culture of black and brown folks or hippies or whatever at the time that used cannabis was, you know, you can't arrest people because they are one of these things. So you criminalize one of their rituals. And you right? go back, was, but yes, but go it, back in time. It's just like, sure. Yeah. And you, know, you go back in time. I mean, you know, people in the 60s, people, people, the trips, I get so, blown away by the idea that people think that it's so ridiculous that people smoke. But let's think about 1683 in the United States of America. No air conditioning, no heat. People slept right. on straw on the ground. There were bugs biting right. them all in, night in long. In Virginia. And, right. yeah, and, don't, and we had all these people growing hemp. Everybody, every forefather grew hemp. Remember when they looked at Benjamin Franklin's pipe in the Smithsonian Institute, they found marijuana in his pipe. They did. Why? Because Ben Franklin right. was getting the buzz. Yeah. I mean, it, it was miserable to live in this planet. And most people don't even recognize and remember the fact that when we first got here to the United States of America, you know, we were everyone, infants were drinking basically near beer because we would distill alcohol in the river water so that we didn't end up with all the bacteria and disease with that malaria. came out of the river. Correct. Well, correct. So we would distill it. Everybody walked around. The drinking water was 2.2, 2.3% alcohol. But people right. don't want to even talk about that. And like, if you're drinking 3.2% alcohol water, all day long, you're walking around with a buzz, and you I bet you wanted to because it was miserable. Like right this minute, as hot as it is outside, you know, and think about it. You know, they gave cannabis yeah. to, to people who worked in fields, not sure. just slaves, but to everybody who worked in the field. Cowboys smoked cannabis when they were out there on the range because it's miserable. Dude, I got to pull it up and miserable. pee. I got to wipe my rear end with a leaf. Stop. Like, <laughs> I mean, you got to right. You, you, you'd want to. You'd want to get big too. Yeah, absolutely, totally, absolutely. Look, I totally agree. I also think that look, Americans, um, we love drugs, right? As much as we want to blame South Americans 
for producing the drugs, unless we're going to repeal the law of supply and demand, we are culpable in this dynamic. We Some were doing it. We were supplying. We were consuming way more than we started importing from South America from the 1600s on. Remember, back in the beginning of this country, it was against the law if you were a farmer and you didn't grow hemp or marijuana. It was against the law. They thought you were unpatriotic if you weren't growing because every sale, every rope, every canvas that went over over a wagon every tent every sheep the entire the entire revolutionary army was clothed in hemp and you know there were times in the u.s navy where you know as a sailor you got your ration of rope when you were out of sea come on man you mean to tell me i'm gonna go out on the water on that wooden thing and hang my rear end over the side of it to go to the bathroom for 60 70 days and you're not gonna give me anything we ran out of beer the first week we were, the first day we right, went right. away Correct. so i mean Correct. the attitude about this just blows my mind but again well it's just i know and i don't understand i i mean i look i think i think it's um it is a crazy situation. America, we love, clearly we love drugs. Why do we hate drug users? We need to stop hating these people. Right. You know, it is not a war on drugs. It never has been. It's a war on people. A war on and individuals. People, yep. That's correct. A war on individuals. And these people are our neighbors. They're our children. They're our, the mailman. They're, you know, they're everybody we know. And it's not, uh, it is not right. I think, uh, maybe I'm optimistic, but I think that there may be a day in American life where we look at our prisons now with as much shame as we look at Manzanar, where people are, you know, they were like, you know, my kids can't believe that if you grew up in the 70s, you sat in the front seat with no seatbelt and your mother smoked. Right. And she told you to just shut up. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> my yeah. kids are like, what? What? Like, right. no, that's, how, that's how life was then. We should be looking back at our prisons filled with uh, with drug users with that much shame. And like, what? That's just unconscionable because the notion that, first of all, that's going to do anything uh, is wrong. It's also people, and I've been, I've heard it all. I've been to conferences. I've read I've YouTube videos. I will never be able to align with the idea that drug use is crime. Like I can get, I can right. get with okay, maybe it's a bad decision. I don't know. Skittles don't seem like such a great decision either, but we don't shoot anybody because of it. Right. Um, I can get with some of those things. I cannot, I cannot for the life of me get my mind around that it's crime. And if it is crime, why is the chosen form of intoxication for white people not crime? Right? Correct. So alcohol should be crime if cannabis is crime. Correct. And, and if you go back before 1937, the chosen you know, option for majority of people who lived in this country was cannabis at some point in time. You go back and look at some of the newspapers at 1890s, 1880s, and there were all kinds of cannabis-based, marijuana-based tinctures that were out there. They weren't even using the word marijuana back then. It was cannabis-based tinctures. People were using tinctures, were smoking, were doing this out on the range, you know, but... You know, just because we recognize that, you know, cannabis was taking away what we thought was man's evolution into textiles, into paper, and into tearing down trees and wrecking the environment, we decided to right. vilify this and spend the money to do so. Now, was your, this is what led you, I guess, initially to help start the remedy recovery, correct? 
Correct. I mean, I think that I've had an evolution myself. I mean, there was a time when I was an ardent, staunch 12-step person. I mean, I, and I think it expanded around a personal, you know, kind of a kind of a patient, client, patient, but also as a personal relationship with a, a semi-famous comedian, Greg Giraldo, who overdosed and died in a hotel room. And, you know, we had tried everything, browbeating him into various forms of traditional treatment and rehab and, okay, you're not willing and you're not ready and you have to go back to meetings and so on and so forth, you know, the traditional route. And the net result was um, a brilliant young guy who is dead with three little boys and, you know, grieving widow. I mean, mm-hmm. and it was like, well, this is, this is terrible. What if we had said, what if, what if, and I don't know, look, I don't have a crystal ball, you know, everybody can Monday morning quarterback, but, you know, you look back on that and I think, well, if, what if he had been able to find success as a medicinal cannabis user to not only um, uh, eliminate self-harming drug use, but also to treat whatever it was he was trying to treat, stress, anxiety, whatever it was. And as a comedian, he would have probably gone ahead and performed really well with it on stage. Totally. Right. So, I mean, everything that he did, uh, and he was a brilliant dude, Harvard Law, went to Harvard Law, practiced for one year and then told his immigrant parents that he didn't want to be a lawyer, he was going to be a comedian. So, mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is immediately already a crazy situation. Because, sure. uh, but, but look, I mean, those guys who are medical cannabis users, they can be present fathers. He could have been the head writer of Saturday Night Live. He could perform at the, at the you know, the village clubs and the, the, uh, Caroline, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there are lots of things that a medicinal cannabis user can do that an impaired drinker, cocaine user cannot do. Um, and us, by us taking off the safety, I do not think that we served him or his family or any, or comedy fans or, you know, I mean, the, the, the ripple effect just grows and grows and grows and grows. And so that was really when I started to think, well, this is, we, we've got to think about this in a different way. And also Dr. Bienenfeld, who you mentioned, who is not a person in recovery, you know, I would take pictures of urine screens and send them to him. <clears throat> and he'd say, well, this is pretty good. And it'd be positive for THC. And he would say, right, but this kid came to us and it was positive for cocaine, opiate, methamphetamine, and alcohol. So if we're just down to THC, I'm not going to worry about that right now. Right. I mean, this kid is, this is tremendous progress. This is a great, and I was like, what? wait a minute. What? I thought we were just supposed to eliminate all drugs, including this. And his particular viewpoint was, look, for now, we've taken death off the table. Uh, could cannabis be a problem for this individual? It might be. Could it be beneficial to this individual? It might be. It might be the thing that's helping them reduce their stress enough so it doesn't tip into this other harming behavior. And that's when the light bulb um, well, that's when the light bulb went off for high sobriety, correct? Correct. For high sobriety. And the name high sobriety was kind of me giving the finger to the rehab industry. Right? I was just like, I didn't want to hide from it. I didn't want to lie about it. I didn't want to sugarcoat it. I didn't want to call it. Um, you know, the rehab business is notorious for um uh, euphemisms, mindfulness, you know, all these mm-hmm. kinds of things. So mm-hmm. I was like, forget it. Here's a truth bomb. Boom. Boom. High right. sobriety. And I mean, like, yeah. let's well, talk about getting high. Yeah. All right, let's talk about what happens there. So a person goes and yeah. ha- has had an opioid addiction problem. 
like we see all over this country, and they enter a facility yeah. like yours, which should be open in every state in America, but they enter they enter a facility like high sobriety. What happens? They walk in the door and you hand them a joint to begin with, or what happens? They walk in the door, well, you sit down I mean, and talk about the principles. Correct. I mean, I mean, first of all, there's a there is a process to determine if the individual is appropriate for that level of care, right? So before they ever come in, you know, what's their age, what's their history, so on and so forth. If they have psychiatric concerns, there's a million different things. So if it's determined that the person is uh, appropriate and they start the detox process, and the detox, you know, they're not medically compromised, they're supervised by an RN under the direction of an MD, um, and they start the taper. Uh, but we've had, look, I've sat through detoxes for 20 years with, in various forms, in VA hospitals and jails and in Malibu, you know, looking at the ocean. And I've never seen anybody uh, get through a detox like people who are given cannabis, right? And what, I mean, what, 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 you say, what, do, what do you see? What's the difference in the person who's given the cannabis versus the person who is, and I, I think I... <laughs> Excuse me. Think I know the answer, but what's the difference in the person yeah. who's given the cannabis and the person who is forced to do it the traditional way, and that is cold turkey? Well, there's two writhing on the floor. Well, they're they're right. I mean, they're given the medication so that they don't have a seizure. If they're going the traditional route, they're told you did this to yourself and stop complaining and remember how terrible you feel, so you don't do it again. You know, I'm always like leading with compassion. Um, you know, look if somebody says to me. Do I get another Valium if you say you don't, not for another four hours? But you can have this. You can have whole plant, uh, what's the, um, Indica. Mm -hmm. And the doctor says that there are no interactions with your other medications. This is perfectly safe. It's probably going to help you sleep. It's going to help you calm down. You know, let's just sort of live in the moment. Just relax. So one of my beliefs is not only does the chemical reaction help them with the pain, but the therapeutic alliance of saying, it's not personal, it's not that I want you to be in pain, but we can only safely give you Valium or Vativan or whatever they're on every so often. But we have this other thing, right? We have this, we have this, we have cannabis, we have people say it helps. Um, I think that that's just a very different dynamic for people because look, you're in one of those LA rehabs. You don't know. I mean, all these, right. they, they can run off into West Hollywood in two seconds and go to the clubs and get drunk. I mean, they can do whatever, whatever they want. But for whatever reason, and I also, you know, my dad, my dad did two, uh, three, three tours in Vietnam. You know, those guys, to me, um, those guys with PTSD, if you can't, to, to say, well, you're not totally sober is unconscionable. I don't understand why you can't say, look, man. I didn't, I didn't do combat. I don't know what that's like, but I know what it's like to live with one of you guys. Why don't you smoke? Why don't you go and smoke a joint and try to go back to bed? That's a very different thing right. than. Well, I mean, but uh, for me, I don't understand what the difference is as a clinician working in a rehab center to say, yeah. what's the difference in them saying, well, here, take another volume because it's been four hours. You can have this volume, go back to sleep. <laughs> uh, excuse me. You know, if that's what you're doing, then how dare you? I, 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 I don't, you know. I, don't, I, I believe me, I have no idea. We had an older lady and she came, she came, I don't know how she found her way to us. And she said, well, I took a Valium and I'm thinking, okay, this story's going to end at the hospital, <laughs> which it did. Um, mm -hmm. And so the short version of the story is we eliminated Valium for a vape pen and when she's in for the evening, she has her vape pen, she's watching Jeopardy, whatever she's doing. 
she's perfectly safe. Right. She's not going to the hospital because she forgot she took the Valium and she had a glass of wine and she smelled it, you know, all those kinds of things that um, can happen specifically to an older population. And it's one right. of the reasons I'm, I'm like, look, older people should absolutely consider cannabis for their, you know, to manage their aches and pain. And Israel, I've spent some time in Israel myself. Personally, I was in Israel yeah. back, I actually interviewed Dr. Mishulam in his laboratory in Israel. And back then, this yeah. is back in 2010, 2011, you know, Israel was looking at cannabis as a geriatric drug because they realized that if they could put people over the age of 70 on that drug, it reduced the amount of other drugs that they were on significantly. And what difference does it make? I mean, so you tell, you know, the 70-year-old, I'm not talking about the addict, but the 70-year-old, go have two glasses of wine before you go to bed. Uh, excuse me? You know, if you're going to tell him to do that, then why can't he go and have you know, a little sativa before he goes to bed. Same impact, I would believe. Correct, and a lot of the a lot of the drugs that an, that older population, you know, older people are on, they are they're managing symptoms, right? They're not. Look, there's no cure for being 75 or 80 years old. Right. Right. I mean, everybody ages in the body. You know, we move joint pain, whatever it is. It's how life goes. So if we're just managing. You know, why not do it as safely as possible with as low risk as possible? Um, you know, you give an older person, uh, I don't know, you give them Vicodin for, for pain. Um, if they double up on that prescription, they're, they could be in trouble. If they in double up trouble. on their vape pen, they're fine. Yeah, I mean, again, may as well say this so people understand there is no record of anybody in the history of mankind dying from an overdose of smoking marijuana. No one. I mean, now, we do have this supposedly anecdotal story of a person who actually had a secondary infection and in lung disease who died from consuming some cannabis that was, you know, mold uh, filled that caused a reaction in their lungs. This is an anecdotal story. Somebody claims this. But still, till today, there has never... And and marijuana has been around for 5,000 years. I just said it. 5,000 years! That's so crazy. It's been around for a long time. Look, I always say the same thing. There there are... Look, 4 million kids went to whatever camp or maybe someone started back to school today and they had peanut butter and jelly. One of them had some kind of reaction to peanut butter. Correct. So there's going to be people who have negative responses to cannabis the way there are people that have negative responses to any medication or any substance. I have a friend who, like, literally, like, a macadamia nut kills him or something. Right. Like, it's just a severe thing, but it is incredibly rare. One of the things that I say, and people hate it, is fully formed adults are perfectly safe using cannabis. Right. The downside is incredibly minimal in a controlled environment. You're not operating machinery or a car or anything like that. And you're home. You are perfectly safe. Personally, I believe it's probably safer than Doritos or a lot of our dietary, you know, I mean, I go into 7-Eleven and look, I'm no saint. I try the best I can with the diet stuff and I fail a lot of the time, but I go into 7-Eleven and I come out with, um, you know, something blue right. and, and, and a bag of Doritos, right? right. <laughs> this can't, this can't be good. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, you... I mean, whatever. I'm in the car. I'm on the freeway. You know, whatever. I mean, I guess it's fine. But, but, and I don't consume cannabis. I will, right? I mean, I just turned, I turned 50 in March. I'm predicting by before I'm 60, I'm going to use it 
for something. I don't know what. Well, you know, you you Yes. Joint pain. Correct. Or maybe just because you feel like feeling a little bit better that night. And what's the problem with that? I I, yeah. I often ask that. And again, you know, we're we're we're, we're talking about you know this the breakthrough I think in technology or breakthrough in the entire you know uh, uh, hemisphere of rehab when we're talking about high society. You gave a, a really good example of you know one of the stories of success that you had about a gentleman who was you know in his seventies mm-hmm. who uh, was a scotch drinker, right? Do you remember the story? Heavy Scott Stranker. Yeah, no, I, I, I know exactly who you're talking about. His mm-hmm. family, look, he was a big dude, and he uh, he fell and knocked over the baby high chair. You know, big drama. So the, the family did what, what families knew to do. They took him out to the desert, and they took him to Betty Ford. And he walked out, and he went to the um, he went to the driving range. And he, <laughs> he's mm-hmm. like, all right, I'm not going to do it. And so anyway, somehow they found their way to us. We... And he was very resistant. I'm not some hippie, you know. Okay, well, you, if you can go home and drink yourself to death, I mean, that's not illegal. There are 88,000 Americans a year who do that. Or you can stay. Why don't you stay? Why don't we try? Why don't we see how this goes? So the short version of the story is, after 90 days, he, he lost 20 pounds. His blood pressure was lower. He was walking on the treadmill. He uh, had agreed to do things that needed to be done, like sell the big house and move into a condo. He agreed to have, uh, well, he agreed to have like, you know, somebody come and bring groceries and do some cleaning. You know, before it was like, forget it, no help, I'm fine, you know, all that business. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, that was from eliminating his use of scotch and offering him a vape pen. Mm-hmm. Now, traditional rehab tells us, well, that's failure because he's not drug free. And AA tells us that that's failure because he's not drug free. So why is, um, you know, this perceived perfection, the, um, you know, the enemy of the vast improvement? Like, how, how do you, how, how can you possibly, this, this man's happier, his children are happier, his grandchildren are happier. He's uh, in better health uh, because, you know, not only because of his uh, elimination of being a scotch drinker, but because. You know, because of that, and he had all that. You know, you know the um, the sleep apnea. Like that yes, is that got yes. better. So, yes. he's, he's sleeping better. So then he's okay. Twenty minutes on the treadmill. You know, then his blood pressure is better. You know, just sort of like grows and grows and grows. And at seventy three, he's, he's living. Seventy three, he's and I was like, look, man. I was like, Bob, take your take your grandsons to the Dodger game now. Right. In an Uber, don't drive. Don't, you know, I'm like, I'm all, sure. for, I'm all, I'm all for safety first. But um, the point being is trying to, you know, there is a lot of those folks out there. There are a lot of people who, who find total abstinence to be far too daunting, um, and they need that educational piece to say, no, cannabis isn't for uh, uh, hippies and degenerates. That's not what. That's not. That's what you've been told. Um, and it's a very different thing now, right? The first time I took him into a dispensary, he was like, well, this looks like a Starbucks. And I said, yeah, imagine that. Right, <laughs> like, right. like these kids, they're going to come over and they'll have an iPad and they're going to ask you like, well, what do you need? Do you want to try a topical? Do you want to try a vape pen? They'll show you how to do it. They'll, you know, um, and I think that it, it was purely, it was a mile wide and paper thin. Right. It, right. it was purely 
you know, as soon as he figured, as soon as he connected to, okay, this is not what he thought. My mother's the same, right? right. She's now found great success managing arthritis pain. But when we initially approached it, she's thinking Angela Davis has gone crazy at UCLA and Reagan shutting down UCLA. Right. Like that's where her mind, her mind was going to this play. Well, Joe, let me ask you a we question. Like, but, but now, now yeah. you just, I think you nailed this on the head, but let me just ask you, I'm running out of time, but, but with, with the aging baby boomer population and we have, you know, the largest demographic left here in the United States, do mm-hmm. you see, you know, I've often thought, and this is one of the things that I've been saying lately is the fact that, you know, when you take a look around the nation, why is cannabis being made or decriminalized and being made more legal? It's because the baby boomers who are now in their late 60s, early 60s, late 60s, going into 70s, mm-hmm. recognize that, you know, they had a really good life. They lived a good life. And remember that they probably smoked a joint or two when they were in high school and they didn't fall off the wagon. They didn't get arrested. They're starting to look back and go, hmm. Maybe. And, you know, I, I, I won't say out loud some of the names that I know, but I know business guys right now that are in their late 60s, early 70s that are literally, you know, blazing all the time. And part of the reason why is because they remember that they did so when they were younger and it didn't affect them in a way that was so deleterious that they were not successful enough to make it to their 70s. So what do we do right. now? How are we going to spread this word, this mantra? How are we going to get more people to understand that it's not you know, the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex that they've been told that it is. It's not the tsunami that's going to wipe out the planet. It's not the chemical that's going to turn everyone into an opioid addict. How do we... <laughs> to a crazy, a, a murdering... A murdering um, African-American. Uh, look, I think that part of my... You know, you, you kind of look at, at public health policy and what's really helped. And one of the things that I think we're probably ignoring is taxation. Um, You know, we talked, you can see the history of tobacco use in the country. And yes, the the public, um, you know, the warning labels help, lots of different things help. But the big help was when, when cigarettes went to $10 a pack. Right. Right. So the taxes were so severe and I think that there should be parity. If, if cannabis is taxed 20 cents per dollar, so should alcohol, right? It should be this sort of offering of, okay, we, there's not moral judgment here. Let's just get past the whole idea of intoxication in general. But why is this substance? And I do believe that more and more and more people would choose a safer substance. One of the things that I think that they have to get over is the idea that they are not criminals. Right. Nobody wants to feel like a criminal. And in the Bay Area, uh, which is all I can speak to, is that I think they've done a tremendous job of making um, they make it's very user friendly. They're very knowledgeable. And so I think that if you just kind of continue to grow that systemically and the more people who are who, like yourself, are advocates um, and who can say, no, I'm a I'm a lawyer and I'm employed and I pay my taxes and I coach my son's little league team and i just prefer cannabis over alcohol the more and more people the more and more normalized it is the better it's going to be for everybody i mean i always challenge people with that anybody with a with a crazy drunk father would you have rather him used cannabis there you go that's one of the questions that seems to be you know and i say (laughs) 
Look, Willie Nelson, he says, by his own admission, I was a violent drunk and, and alienating my family. And when I switched to cannabis, I wrote Angels Fly Too uh, He wrote Angels Fly Too Close to the Ground. He's 84 years old. The guy tours still. Yes, yes. And I think an right? example so, for so many. Yep. An yep. example for so many. That's correct. Absolutely. So that's what I'm saying. Come out of the church basement recovering people. Come out of the whatever. Come out of the bar bathroom people and just let people know you are not. You are not a bad person. You know, you don't need to hide in the shadows because you use a product that is safer than the one that is accepted by this culture. There you go. Joe Schrank, thank you so much, sir, for being on our show today. I'd love to have you back. So we're definitely going to call you and see if we can schedule some more time with you because you have so many more things to say. Um, I got to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And let's try to make sure we have those blunt conversations. Stop being so embarrassed to say to your friend, oh, yeah, I, I, I actually smoke a little marijuana. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't be embarrassed. Make sure you get a chance to say that. Thanks so much, Joe, for being with us today. Tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt. And, you know, I'd love to hear your criticism. I'd like to know what you think. So, you know, send me a review. And we're going to keep being as blunt as we possibly can. 